And when I'm writing tests, I just want to write my tests and I want it to be fast. I just need to get tests and I want to spend more time writing more tests and not more times writing less tests. Mm-hmm. Right. And just pulling out those if statements and pulling out that logic where, you know, in my Go code that I'm testing, of course, I'm going to take care to craft better error messages and have better syntax and all that sort of stuff. But I'm writing my tests. I just needed to say that these two things weren't equal and I don't need to keep repeating that constantly. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean, Droplets, Managed Kubernetes, Managed Databases, Spaces, Object Storage, Volume Block Storage, Advanced Networking like Virtual Private Clouds and Cloud Firewalls, Developer Tooling like the Robust API and CLI to make sure you can interact with your infrastructure the way you want to. DigitalOcean is designed for developers and built for businesses. Join over 150,000 businesses that develop, manage, and scale their applications with DigitalOcean. Head to do.co slash changelog to get started with a $100 credit. Again, do.co slash changelog. Let's do it. It's go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. Big show next week. We go deep with Ian Lance Taylor and Robert Griesemer about the latest on generics. So stay tuned for that one. Oh, and stick around for the outro today. We're doing a giveaway and I think you're going to like it. Okay, let's talk testing frameworks. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Go Time. I'm Matt Ryer. Today we're talking about testing frameworks. Uh, some subjects which aren't controversial in other languages are sometimes controversial in Go, and this is one of those, and we're going to find out why that might be. Today I'm joined, it's only Mark Bates. Hello, Mr. Bates. Hello, Mr. Ryer. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? All right. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I really thought I was going to have something there and I just didn't. Yeah, you were just waiting and nothing came. Yeah, I haven't been on the show in a while, so I'm just a bit rusty, that's all. That's all right, mate. Don't worry, you're in good hands. We're also joined by a special guest, Boyan Subachov. Boyan, uh, did I welcome you? Welcome. Yeah. Okay, let me did do that Did you again. welcome him? Yes, did you say it correctly? <laughs> Boyan Subachov. That's perfect. Okay. Hey, Matt. Hey, Mark. Welcome to the show. Hey, Boyan. Now, I got to ask a question here. The, the folks at home can't see this, but I think you're trying to pretend like you're in some sort of fancy Mediterranean paradise <laughs> where I have a feeling it's a beige wall behind you. How close am I to the truth? Pretty damn close because it's <laughs> 5 a.m. In, a, in Sydney in winter, so it's anything but sunny and warm. <laughs> Fair enough. Wow. Well, thank you for joining us so early. Not a problem. Yeah, no, it's great. Or maybe it's so late. We don't know. Maybe he's been up all night. <laughs> just getting in? He's just getting in. He's been in like a, one of those all-night raves. <laughs> Thankfully, our on-call schedule isn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, so today we're talking about testing frameworks. Okay, I have a question, Matt. Sorry? Before we go any further about testing frameworks. Testing frameworks, what? Are we talking about testing like frameworks that help us test or testing frameworks like buffalo oh no no sorry i just had to get the buffalo plug in there early and then that way it's like a hitchcock thing people are just waiting for it yeah like get it out quickly buffalo (laughs) then we just exactly we got to move on to the okay the rest of it well we can talk about testing testing frameworks later as well if you like if we could really get creative. Yes, I like to use a different testing framework to test the testing framework just to be on the safe side. You actually have to because the testing framework doesn't exist, <laughs> right? And what if there's a bug in it? That's not true. Go is written in go. Come on. Go is written in go. Yeah. Everybody knows you just 
First one's in C, and then you bootstrap. (laughs) (laughs) What are testing frameworks then? And what does it mean in Go? Maybe it's worth just a bit of an overview for uh, junior developers or people that aren't familiar with this yet. What are we talking about? Well, that was actually, uh, I was making a bad little joke there about, you know, the testing frameworks, but I do have a legitimate thing. We do. I think we need to talk about the language, mm. right? Um, are we talking about assertion libraries, which are, you know, this is no error, no, you know, false, true, whatever, not nil. Or are we talking about frameworks that like Ginkgo and Gomega and stuff where you have to buy in to their entire process? Like Go Convey has its own scripting language if you want a testing scripting thing, if you want to go through that. Mm. So when we talk testing frameworks, are we talking one, are we talking the other, are we talking both? We're talking all of those things, I think, today. (laughs) I think that it's a spectrum, effectively. Hmm. There's, you know, a trade-off says there is to everything where you have the lightweight stuff like, well, testifying is, uh, which is just almost like syntactic sugar. And you have, as you mentioned, Ginkgo, where it's on the complete opposite end, where this is how you will do it. And it's almost like a fat middleware layer and the right tool for the job, I guess. Mm. Yeah, so for anyone at home then that's new to this, uh, testing generally in code is a way to really uh, improve the quality of the code by writing automatic tests that can run and they basically become a user of your code and then they work as though your user of your code is going to do the work and then they can make assertions about what happens. So that's generally the process of testing. And then, of course, if you make little changes, you can run your tests and make sure you haven't broken things. And so testing frameworks help you with that process in various ways. And there are different types. So, for example, the simplest case, like the syntactic sugar case, and I think Testify at one point was the most imported package in Go. I don't know if that's still true, but it's certainly a popular choice. So let's let's start with Testify. What is Testify? What does it do? And uh, how would you use that? Well, you you wrote it, Matt. Why don't you tell us? <laughs> well, uh, I've just been talking too much. A lot of people don't know that Matt was one of the original authors. So, yeah. So Matt and I share a common thread on that one. Uh, he obviously, is, uh, I mean, Matt, you know the history way better than I do. And I know the status quo. Uh, I have a bit more context on the status quo, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I'd like you to give the history, though, please. Sure. No, of course. So... Obviously, uh, Testify, uh, well, Matt, uh, you start, I believe you were one of the original authors. Okay, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, this was way back, uh, I think even before the first GopherCon. So this is like 2014 time. And we we came from Ruby and I did some, I've done a lot of JavaScript and C-sharp. And a lot of these uh, languages have testing frameworks or even some of them are just built in where you can use language like assert equal and you give it two things. And if it's, if those two things aren't equal, that's considered then a failing test. So in Go, if you don't use a testing framework, you end up writing longhand, really, that process. So you'll say, you'll use an if and check two variables. If they're not equal or whatever the condition is, then you use the, the testing T to do some work to either report the error or fail the test or whatever it is you want to do. Um, we did testify just because we're used to writing in that format. That's all. It was purely kind of syntactic sugar. And then because it was so early, I think it just kind of became part of an easy choice. It was the, the oldest probably at one point and probably always is. No, an even older one came out. Yeah, no, yeah, an older one came out. After. Just last month, actually. <laughs> Yeah. So I think it's that. It got in early and people were complaining about writing tests in this longhand form. And some people weren't writing tests for that reason. So that's why we did Testify. And we love testing and unit testing and things. So it was it was me and uh, Tyler Stillwater that created the original. And then lots of contributors and the project's grown and taken on a life of its own as these things do. And that's really it, I think, for the history. Right. And just to add there, I actually would disagree on a small point. Okay. You did mention, obviously, because you were early, I think that helps. But I also think the majority of it is just, it saves the community time and the community finds it valuable. Mm. Because, 
it's a simple problem that's solved with a simple solution, in my opinion, anyways. So exactly that. And now the current state is almost like a, oh, time to write some tests, quickly import testify. It's almost second nature to a lot of uh, gophers, mm. which in my opinion is a great thing, but it's also a big responsibility because if something is shared by all gophers, it, it has the, the pressure of it being all things to all people. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because some of the innovation that happened over the years with that, one of them was there used to be a, well, there is a require package, which has a kind of slightly different behavior. Uh, I think one of them lets you carry on. That's the one I use. Require, assert lets you, your test keep running hmm. and just logs the failures. Require stops the test. So, so that's one, for me, I love require. I use it for all my tests. Matter of fact, my ulti snips kind of go snippet when I type test tab, hmm. it fills in the require.new testing T thing, uh, like right there. It's just part of my tests. I like the require. My problem with the assert is typically if something fails, I want the test to just stop mm -hmm. um, and not keep throwing panics for, <laughs> for the next five minutes, you know, which is usually <laughs> what happens because something that wasn't supposed to be nil is nil now yeah. and your tests are just panicking all over the place. So I like that. For me, like I said, I'm a huge, huge fan of require. I probably use at the most 10 or 12 of the assertions. You know, mm -hmm. error, no error, nil, not nil, <laughs> right? Really basic assertions. I don't typically use some of the really grandiose or kind of odder assertions, but I'll do occasionally maybe grab a contains or something like that. What I like about it is it just what Matt was kind of saying earlier, just all that repetitive code, right? Just all those if checks. Now I got to come up with a good log message, right? I, when I'm writing tests, I just want to write my tests and I want it to be fast. Like I just need to get tests and I want to spend more time writing more tests and not more times writing less tests, mm -hmm. right? And just pulling out those if statements and pulling out that logic where, you know, in my Go code that I'm testing, of course, I'm going to take care to craft better error messages and you know, have better syntax and all that sort of stuff. But I'm writing my tests. I just needed to say that these two things weren't equal and I don't need to keep repeating that constantly. And things like require just kind of do that. And I also quite like the way it reads too. It, as I'm, my tests are a lot smaller, maybe they're now a half dozen or eight lines long as opposed to, you know, three times that with all the if checks that you kind of need kind of going on in there. And I can just read it. It's like, do this. Okay, there was no error. This was not nil. These are equal. Done. Mm. I just read it quickly down. And I think, I remember, Matt, you and I had a conversation around this uh, offline one day mm. about is. You mean offline? You mean in real life? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Remember, that. <laughs> remember offline I, I do remember that you know it's just sorry don't mean to digress but uh go for con uk supposed to be next month mm. and we were going to co-host together in london as always <laughs> it's not gonna happen i was so looking forward to it yeah anywho back to the <laughs> subject so yeah i love require and i like what it does for my test in terms of just making them small quick clean and readable mm. It's an interesting point because, as I mentioned, all things to all people, we've had so many requests. I get so many GitHub notifications and issues saying, please remove require. It's useless. <laughs> we just use assert. <laughs> it is not useless. It's more useful than assert. Exactly. If anything, I would say remove assert. assert. <laughs> like, why do you want your test to keep going? I just boggles my mind it's too late though we can't just remove <laughs> a cert now because what would happen no, no i know but like it's just like why would you use a cert over require i don't know <laughs> yeah i always wondered that actually in fact it, i remember in the original uh, design we had the assert methods return bools as a way to get around it so you could build you could do like an if block and say if this is not nil and then it turns false if that failed i guess that's a weird yeah right. it's confusing i can see why you got rid of that <laughs> i think it's still there <laughs> i don't know i don't use a cert <laughs> yeah <laughs> and require doesn't have it i think as well actually uh, ernesto jimenez uh, who's one of the maintainers um who's a great engineer lovely chap too 
automated the the, the generation of require f- by inspecting assert. So it was actually an automatic process. They didn't have to keep maintaining the two code bases. Correct. To this day, it's a great addition. We stole auto-gen require from <laughs> the assert code. Yeah. That's cool, isn't it? <laughs> I think that's cool. It's awesome. <laughs> Anything that we can do to get computers to write code for us, I'm all over it. Yeah, exactly. Changelog News is the best way to keep up with the fast-moving software world. We track, blog, and contextualize the coolest projects, the best practices, and the biggest stories each and every week. Make changelog.com your daily destination or hit the snooze button and subscribe to our weekly newsletter that hits inboxes on Sunday mornings. Join more than 15,000 enthusiastic readers. It'll cost you exactly $0 and you can subscribe right now at changelog.com weekly. We talked about the way it reads, so you can say require not nil or uh, you know assert equal those kinds of things. I prefer the variable version to be perfectly honest. So, so I'll do require dot new t mm-hmm. and like assign that to r. Usually is what I do. So I can just do r no error whatever. I right. again, it's all about that l- quick. <laughs> I just want to write stuff. I don't typing require dot equals t two things is so much more code. Mm. And just R dot equal two things, right? Like, yeah, I know that's just my preference. Yeah, and Testify wraps the testing T as well, and I, I don't think that's true for all of them. There are some others that do the same, and that's a kind of nice. I think that's quite a nice little design thing, because I think originally, again, they were just global functions, and are they still, Boyan? Are they still global functions? You can still access them, yes, package level. Yeah. Okay. So that's originally what it just was. But you have to pass T in to do it. Yes. You pass T in as the argument. That's right. Yeah. So it's a different flavor of that. Yeah. It's funny because it really is an example of a project that has evolved in quite an interesting way over the years. Well, I wanted to talk about the format, the, the readability of it, because there is another kind of style of this, which are behavior driven tests. Does someone want to just tell us what what's a behavior driven test and how is the language different? Yeah, so if you're coming from Ruby, like a few of us did, a lot of us did, um, so many people I know from Ruby and, <laughs> and go over the years, that was one of the big things, RSpec being one of the biggest testing frameworks in the Ruby world. And in Ruby, it works really, really well because of the nature of Ruby being a scripting language. And you can write these really kind of beautifully syntaxed sentences where it says, you know, almost pro. describe, you know, as a user, I want to do and then X, Y, and Z, you know, and, you know, log in. And then here's a little thing. And I want to be able to, you know, forget my password and have it reset and this kind of more of a natural language style where you're telling a story Mm. with it, you know, so that kind of as a, I want to kind of story that we all know of and we all hear that someday they're the other side's going to write and then we can just (laughs) test and that never happens. But that works really well in those uh, languages. Like, you know, and most of us in Ruby, I think lived in that world. I don't know about you, Matt, but did you write your tests that way or did you use more of a unit test style um, when you're doing Ruby? I always used the unit test style. I found it to be quite unnecessarily verbose. I know that sometimes they, because you literally put those things as strings into the test code, don't you? And then from that, you can generate some quite nice looking failures. If if something fails, you can, you know, it reads quite nicely, but... I found it to be too verbose, actually, and just just saying, you know, not equal, and then showing you the two values or something, was just easier to see. The thing I like about BDD versus unit testing actually has to do with those kind of the names of the tests. Hmm. You know, when you're writing a simple test, right? You know, tests that create does something, right? That's a pretty simple test name. But when you start having all those weird variants, 
mm. right? Then the string-based text names become really, <laughs> really useful. You know, when you can, when you just need a little bit more description as to what it is you're trying to test, and that's harder to do in a unit type of a test where you have a function name. Mm. You know, for me, I get around that a little bit and go with underscores in my test names. All right. So I have a different approach to how I do my test name. So it's obviously tests something, right? Because we all have to start there. Uh, and then usually it's an underscore with the next thing being if I'm testing, a, say, something on a struct or a type, right? And then it'll be the type. So it's test, underscore, type, underscore, and then the method let's say, or something like that, where I can kind of look at the tests, read them a little bit better, try to figure out what they're doing. And also when I'm trying to do run, mm -hmm. it helps me because I have a bit of a pattern. <laughs> so if I want to test all the file stuff, my type's called file and I want to run all the file tests, I can you know do test underscore file underscore, and it's going to get me all of the tests for the file type when I do the run. Mm -hmm. So... That's how I'm getting around it <laughs> in Go is with using that. But there are frameworks like Ginkgo that let you experience that a bit more in Go. I think a key thing there, and at least my takeaway of it is, uh, because the philosophies behind BDD and TDD, at least the way I, I understand it, is that uh, BDD should be more focused on the user or the consumer that we're writing this code for, whereas TDD is a lot more technical or engineer-focused. Personally, I tend to hybridize where I'll do them TDD style because I find them simpler and less verbose. I'm not expecting the user to read my tests, uh, but I'll try and order and make the tests actually focus on user behavior in, you know, in more complex functions rather than just proving that the function works or stopping it from regressing in a way. Yeah, have you seen uh, property-based testing as well? This is a, a, another kind of... Uh style yeah it's um almost like fuzzing for your functions where you specify not what values to test with but what types of values your function takes as input mm. and uh, obviously also what uh, kind of output you expect and then the property-based testing framework of which one example is copter will then just generate a uh, you know, whether it's random or in some specific sequence will generate plenty of values to then test your function and try and find edge cases for you that mm. do not conform to the specification. That's really cool, isn't it? Yeah. The first exposure I had to that was with Hypothesis in Python, and it was pretty awesome. I mean, an obvious problem there is you now have, especially if your functions are a bit more complex, that it can take a while for tests to run <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, because you're now running the same function 10,000 times rather than once or five times. But, you know, for pure functions where, you know, where your code doesn't have side effects, yeah, it's very good at finding edge cases and, and little behaviors that you didn't anticipate. Does it explicitly have edge cases programmed into it so if it's like an int it's going to try extreme like max int and minimum ints and things like this or is it is there an element of random more randomness like fuzzing i think it depends on the framework but i believe i haven't personally used copter just yet in go but in a lot of them you can actually specify uh where you know i want to range from minint to max int or whatever whatever the minimum maximum value is mm. or you can just say give me this distribution I believe it's it can be customized. But uh, if I'm not mistaken, the default is to just basically sample from the minimum to maximum and try and find pathological cases of the input values. Mm. Do either of you do fuzz testing? Fuzzing? I have once, but it was really to play with it. But I think it's it, it depends on the kind of code you're writing because it's not suitable for everything, is it? Yeah, like I think I'm the same as Matt. I... <laughs> done like once to try it out yeah damien's always on about it damien risky how do you pronounce this Would that sound about right i don't i, I let you do it <laughs> thanks <laughs> i apologize um but you know he's always talking about fuzzing and so i do try to play with it every once in a while i think you're right i feel like there's a type of code that it works really well for at least i have i haven't figured it out well enough to see it beyond 
like and, and to see it in cases where it's useful to me i couldn't figure out how to get it to work say in a web environment <laughs> other than to pass in random json kind of blobs but well yeah but w- one example is the plush library in in the buffalo project actually because that takes input user input and it parses it doesn't it and it literally breaks it into tokens into an ast and all all that so that's probably a good candidate for fuzzing because that was the one i tried it with <laughs> is it yeah yeah, yeah, because you want it to essentially fuzzing for those that don't know and do check it out because it is very cool. Essentially, yeah, if you've got a string as an input to some method, it'll just make loads of bonkers strings as as crazy as it can, including massive ones and uh, you know all sorts of random uh, nonsense in an attempt to sort of break your code. And if it can, it it tells you its input will break your code. So I guess the point about that is. Ideally, Mark, nothing should make that plush panic. It should always be an error, meaningful right. error. And you might find some panics or something that you would just never think of uh, because of fuzzing, but who knows? Not me. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> you just do it manually fuzzing, don't you, Mark? You- we just established that I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Mark just does manual fuzzing, so he just types in. <laughs> he just writes loads of tests, but in- just does it manually, it's like mashing the keyboard. Nah, my dog takes care of it all. Pardon? My dog takes care of it all. Ringo is yeah. an amazing <laughs> fuzzer. I've heard of cats walking on keyboards. I haven't heard of dogs walking on keyboards. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said Ringo's a special dog. You, you, you know. Yeah. Uh, oh, things you see on Zoom nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is good. Are we done? <laughs> no. No. Just kidding. Do we have questions from the audience? Actually, I seen the GoTime FM channel, and there's one about mocking. Mocking, mocking. Okay, so who wants to tell us what mocking is? Not me. I'll I'll give it a shot. Come on, Boyan, Boyan to the rescue. So we unfortunately don't live in an ideal world where all our functions are pure and have no side effects. Mm. Uh, Sometimes, for example, they need to interact with databases or external services. And when we run tests, especially unit tests or specifically unit tests, we want them to run quickly and just test that function rather than the side effects it has on these external resources. So a general and a common practice is to mock out those resources. So effectively return some blank known value for the test or preset that we know for the test. And we then assert that with these values, the function did what it was supposed to do, given these inputs from the external resource. Right. Uh, Yeah, so that's great. And so the specific question from Aditya was about database mocking. So how do we feel about mocking databases? Myself, personally, Mm. I find it's quite useful a lot of the time. An approach I actually like to take is to try and abstract or, or, or yeah, abstract our database interface as an interface mm-hmm. and then just spawn a new stub or a mock version of that interface and pass it in. But what does the interface look like for a database? Yeah, it's a good, it, it's highly dependent obviously on what you're using or what you're needing, but you obviously have your basic CRUD operations. Mm-hmm. Or if, if your function's using them. And then anything more specific. In the abstract sense, it's difficult because it becomes incredibly context-specific mm. given what your code does. Yeah, it does. And it is also possible to create tightly coupled test code as well where it becomes so brittle that any change in the implementation will break something, you know, because sometimes things are over-tested, I think. I actually think 100% code coverage, depending on the project, could be a mistake because essentially you have described probably, well, almost certainly you've described everything in that package and any change to that will then break the tests. And that can, from a practical point of view, get really annoying when every time you make little tweaks, you have to then go and also update tests i always tell people try to hit for around 90 right 90 is a good number like if you can get it around there you're doing all right because you know what you're not going to get at 90 you're not going to get all those like if error equals nil return nil 
<laughs> the errors. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's that's what you're gonna get if you hit ninety. You're just gonna skip all those like those particular because you're like you can look at them and validate that they're returning an error. You don't really need, and sometimes it's more complicated to try and get that error inserted. Yeah, just so to get the test to pass. When it's more just like, hey, I don't really care if any error comes back from this. Just pass it back up. Like, I don't need to force an error there just to trigger that one code path for a test. Um, But to get back to the database thing, Mm. I do not mock out my databases. Right. You use a real database? I use a real database, yeah. Mm. In Ruby, it was a real problem. (laughs) And that's nothing against... It's not Ruby. It's not Rails. It's just... The work of something like Active Record, taking all those database records and breaking them into all those Ruby objects and all the work that it did in that highly dynamic interpreted language meant that to hit the database takes a long time and uses a lot of resources. <laughs> it really slowed your tests down after a while in Ruby. Mm. In Go, it's not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> Like, my tests are still plenty fast. I mean, they're hitting Postgres locally. How how much of a slowdown could that be? Uh, and honestly, I find that it's usually plenty good enough. Uh, it, my tests are fast enough. I don't have to deal with trying to keep all those objects. And when you're dealing with, I don't know, I find when I'm dealing with database stuff, the amount of things I need to mock out to make it usable is sizable. <laughs> yeah, you end up building the, a, a, a database emulator in memory. Yeah, and, and and for me, like, I'm just like, if I'm going to spend, I, I don't need to spend all that time. Like, I'll just hit Postgres. It's right there. It's going to be there on my server. It's going to be there on my CI. Like, it's local. It takes me 30 seconds to install. Like, I'll just hit it. And I know that all my queries are correct. I know that my marshalling to the database and from the database is correct, right? Like, yeah, I feel like there's a whole... And this is my unpopular opinion. Matt wanted me to come up with an unpopular opinion, and I was going to say that I like like assertion libraries. But I think this is more unpopular. (laughs) Okay, well, save it for the official segment. Well, you got it now, Matt. (laughs) Don't preempt the segment, Bates. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe that's an unpopular opinion. That is an unpopular time. No, I should have to wait till the segment. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's yeah. a second unpopular opinion. <laughs> that's very meta. You're right, though. Te- that's kind of an integration test in a way, what you're describing then, Mark, right? But It is in, in some respects. And I think, I mean, you know, again, we could talk about this, this for a long time and, and the distinctions between unit integration and even the distinctions between mocking and stubbing and interfaces. <laughs> mm-hmm. there, there starts to be a bit of a problem. I completely agree that, you know, right tool for the job, if it works, fantastic. But that starts being a problem when you have 5,000 other engineers and, <laughs> and you need to do this on, on services with a ton of complicated DB interactions and code, I guess. Yeah, I'm not saying it's for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying for my my stuff, I see it as something that I would rather try to come up with a couple good interfaces where I need them. Uh, and typically, a couple good interfaces are all I really need. And, you know, a couple one method, two method interfaces are usually good enough to, if I write my code well enough to fully isolate kind of, or at least for the most part, isolate the, the things that I really want to tweak and change, Right. And I try to allow myself those insert points in code mm. where they might be in the form of, say, a plugin shape where I can add certain plugins to my web server and testing that mutate the request or do stuff that lets me fake out third-party requests with transports and all sorts of other stuff, right? So I can't remember what the point was, but it sounded good. Did. <laughs> uh, spend time on what works, right? On the important things. Yeah, oh, that was it. Yeah, and then, you know, abstract. And then when I find that I hit those problems like you were just describing with other all these engineers and a bigger abstraction is needed, then I put the time into that level of abstraction. But right from the beginning, it's just <laughs> like you got bigger fish to fry than that abstraction, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, context probably is very important. I have seen as well one, one simple way to uh, mock... Context, the interface or context, like 
knowledge. Oh no, I just meant the English word context. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I, I was legitimately confused for a yeah, second. Yeah, no, sorry, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Yes, there are some uh, simple ways to, to mock out databases as well that I've seen and, and used in the past. Uh, it, sometimes it's a case of uh, just have your own uh, interface that, that you describe in your code and the, your implementation of it touches a real database and does the, has the database code in there. But that could be quite easy to mock. And then, you know, you aren't making database calls, but it might be something like, load user or load lesson you know and whereas in where in production that's going to be a database request you could mock out that interface at that level so it's a kind of slightly higher level way of doing it have you done things like that before anyone personally that's uh, at least yeah in the last few years that's uh, where i've been working in larger go teams definitely that has been the way we've done things right we're spending more time on getting the right interface and abstraction going. But that's, as we've been talking, purely because of the team size and the code base size. It becomes more practical to do that. Yeah, so the, the other thing about um, mocking, and uh, if you want to mock out, say, even if it's a database or some third-party service or whatever, it is useful in test code to be able to do that so that you can return realistic data so that your code can do its thing and so that it's predictable and all that stuff. Um, I have in the past done assertions inside the mock almost, and I feel like this might be a step too far in most cases. The idea is, you know, there's, there's a method. In fact, there's a project called mock, M-O-Q, uh, which is one that uh, I wrote with some friends of mine. I can't remember who. It's in the repo, though. Uh, credit where credit's due. The show in which Matt tells us all about his former projects he no longer uses. Go on, man. <laughs> no, I do use this one. I do actually, yes. Yeah. So th this was from David Hernandez, and he came up with this uh, nice pattern for doing mocks, which was essentially you create a struct, and then for every method, there's a field that matches the signature, and then you implement on that struct those methods as well, which just call those functions. And so that gives you almost just like a transparent layer of that type which you can then in test code create and give it little functions which will that they'll be the things that get called and you can do things like simulate errors um like we were talking about earlier or importantly they're good for returning useful and predictable data um i think it's better not to make assertions about what was called in that because it's kind of implementation detail potentially there but it probably does again depend on each case doesn't it I think it's okay to to kind of assert errors and stuff like that <laughs> in in there. You know, if you're getting a new UUID and it errors out or something, like mm. <laughs> I think it's okay to do that. But yeah, asserting on the data there, I I often do that field function thing, not just on like test structs, but regular types too, where there are areas where I want to provide maybe a default implementation and then allow people to replace it so one might be around envs for example mm. right so i've been kind of recently playing around with this idea of using zero value structs for my configuration where the methods on that struct there's no real fields just methods and those methods will look for an env and then if they find it return it otherwise return maybe some default and i like that you just kind of grab a config <laughs> just to var it up and boom, all your stuff's there. You don't need to really initialize it. Mm. But obviously when you're dealing with environments, it's really hard to test. Uh, and sometimes, not even that, but you want to on maybe on a specific request as you're passing maybe a config down, you want to change a value, right? And you can't do that if they're all functions. So one of the things I do there is have kind of a get env function that matches os.getenv. Right, but you can set it, and all those functions in, that are on my config will check and say, "Oh, if there is this function defined, let me use that," and that could just be returning a test value, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Or use the default, which is OS get env. Um, so I've been using I use that pattern quite a lot too. I like that of here's a default way of doing things, and then here's a function you can implement as a field, same signature. And it'll call that instead. If yeah. It has it. yeah. The good use of that is if you need to 
control time because the net, the time dot now function yeah. just returns the current time. So obviously in real code, that's uh, from every time, but you can have a function field matches the time dot now signature, which I think is just empty funk, and then assign it by default to time dot now, and then control that in your test code. So yeah, I love those sort of mini mocks almost. In Ruby, we had a great thing called time cop, and it was such a random Ruby thing where it would override basically time dot now to be whatever value <laughs> wanted it to be because you could just override anything so you could say like i want to be three weeks into the future and time dot now would return three weeks in the future great scott oh god yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was spectacularly awful and good and fun <laughs> yeah it was one of those things you can only do in a dynamic language though yeah it's also the reason i'm not using a dynamic language <laughs> No, the, the the way I look at it, at least, is uh, if it's something that's, it, it, how likely is it to change? Uh, basically, how likely is your database state to change? How likely is your time to change? If it's anything other than low, take it out, mock it out, make it as a dependency that's injected. Mm. Uh, but that's a rule of thumb that I follow anyways. changelog is deep discussions in and around the world of software and it's been going for over a decade we interview hackers like chris anderson from 3d robotics at the time drones were like predators and global hawks and military industrial and they were classified and super you know 10 billion dollar things and we had just built a drone with lego pieces around the dining room table programmed by a nine-year-old and it's like okay that should not be possible. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's not, it, when when a nine-year-old can do something that is classified, that literally export controlled as munition with Lego with toy pieces, it is something important in this world has changed. Leaders like Devin Zugel from GitHub. In the like 10 to 15 year range or 20 year range, what I would really like is for if you have like three 12 year olds hanging out and one of them's like, I want to be a firefighter. Another one's like, I want to be a lawyer. I want one of them to say, I want to be an open source developer. And innovators like Amel Hussein. I've yet to kind of see applications at scale that don't use multiple languages, that don't have just arcane stories behind why this weirdo thing exists, you know? Like, all right, when you open this file, you're going to have to turn around three yeah. times and tap your nose <laughs> once. <laughs> like, it's, there be just, dragons. it's like, just the most hilarious stories, you know? But applications are living, breathing, they have craft, that's normal. So I want to normalize weirdness because that's just how applications evolve over time. Welcome to the changelog. Please listen to an episode from our catalog that interests you and subscribe today. We'd love to have you with us. Talking about Testify then, uh, Boyan, what do you see are the sort of challenges with maintaining a project like testify what's easy and what's difficult and great scott great question great scott oh. <laughs> <laughs> so one due to its obviously size and popularity uh, there are a lot of people wanted to work for them and that's fair enough our, our i think our goal is to have a framework that makes life as easy for as many people as possible that being said you have infinite different use cases for it. So we had a big difficulty there is just how many different requests we have to add this specific feature so that it works in my case and this specific feature in my case. And we try and be as fair as possible and consider each case, but ultimately we're guided by would the community as a whole or as a greater have, have benefit from this. And also a big thing is to always be vigilant of starting to couple it to to be dependent on either some other technology or some other proprietary standard or whatever because i think a great example was we've had change requests to change how the framework works so that makes it easier to run in goland which would break it for everyone who's not using goland uh, so <laughs> 
that was a no-no in our books. <laughs> one of the things that I often hear people say about Testify, obviously, because it's one of the big ones, but about any of the assertion li libraries is, well, occasionally I'll hit a rough spot or I'll, I'll hit something that doesn't quite work. Uh, equal is a, always a great example of that. There's some really edge cases there. I ran into just yesterday an edge case with uh, Testify Zero where I had an expectation that if I implemented is zero returning a bool, which is kind of like an unofficial interface you'll find across the standard library, like time has it. I thought that if I did that and called, you know, not zero or zero on testify that it would look at my type, see that it implements the is zero returns false and then is not, you know, whatever. Um, and that's not the case. And I even dug deep into reflect because it uses reflect zero and reflect, you know, and even that doesn't call that, <laughs> that interface. So I hit one of those edge cases and it took me a few minutes to dig through the code, figure it out. And then I said, oh man, okay, that I really thought it worked that way. It doesn't. I'll just change the way I'm writing my test a little bit. Like, and I just moved on. So, you know, I don't know. I don't put a lot of credence into the like, I hit one random edge case, so they're all terrible argument. I find that if you hit one edge case, you've hit one edge case. <laughs> if the rest of the time it's working just fine for you, uh, that's <laughs> yeah. that's definitely a baby with the bathwater kind of a thing. Like if I threw out all my tests yesterday because the require zero did not follow the is zero interface, then I mean, that would just be stupid on my <laughs> part. That'd be such a waste of time and effort and energy. Because I hit one edge case. Yes, it's kind of like perfection is the enemy of good, isn't it? Then, and I understand yeah. <laughs> if you're using a technology and it lets you down in some way like that. I completely understand why you've you sort of the credibility gets lost a little bit. But Mark, your attitude of like, ah, ninety percent, sort of like it's most, you know, I think that is actually quite a healthy perspective to have, which is it's good enough, isn't it? Yeah, agreed. <laughs> you know, and I'll keep adding the tests as things break, you know, and I find those new edge cases and I'll keep adding new tests to cover them. But like, yeah, you just got to move on with your day at some point. Like I said, and there was no way I was throwing out testify because is zero didn't behave quite the way I thought it did. Despite the fact that, and don't forget, the documentation makes no claims to respecting that pseudo random interface anyway. Hmm. I made an assumption on my part, proved out to be wrong, and I just changed my test to like our true, you know, yeah. foo dot zero. Mm. And that that was fine. I just made that little change, but Yeah. I think that's right. When Testify was in its early stages, we had this policy of anybody that contributed a PR was uh, invited to become a maintainer. So this was an idea that that you know, it's about, because it's a community-owned thing, you know, it was completely open source. So it's kind of this sort of community spirit and inclusiveness and stuff. The effect of that, I think, in Testify's case was that the API grew quite a lot. And the, the, if you look at the index page in Godoc for Stretcher Testify Assert package, it's massive. And of course, of course the, the require one is too, yeah. So what's the downside to having that much stuff there and there are pros and cons to it so what what are the pros what are the cons i don't know there are that many pros but go on <laughs> well the pros are it does all those things that people want it to do yeah but the cons i don't know i'm not going to speak here for i would feel the cons are far away the pros of a large api in this case but Boyan, what do you think no, exactly. I, it's so there are the, obviously the pros are it, it covers a few specific use cases that some people have, but the cons are you have this code that needs to be maintained and we need to make sure it doesn't regress. Uh, but also a big one is people just end up importing and polluting their package namespace. Uh, so, I mean, if you have a test and you want to assert a but you now want to figure out which assertion should I use with testify? <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> I think that's why people just default to equal and start doing a lot of the, the hard work to, to mangle it into an equals uh, assertion problem, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's quite a good strategy because then at least the complexity is with the user. It's in their code, you know, it's in user land. And that, that's something that I 
have learned over time, which is that if you can solve this problem easily enough in user land, i.e. outside of this package, then that's a good kind of signal that it shouldn't be something that goes into the package. That yeah. wasn't a, a policy or anything, uh, as you can tell by the, the size of um, Testify, I think. But I do wonder if we could use that BigQuery data set to find out in open source Go code, which methods are used and which ones aren't really used. And Boyan, what about the future of Testify? What about if we find out a lot of these methods aren't used ever or very rarely used? What about phasing methods out and cleaning, tightening up that API? Or doing a V2 that has a much tighter API would be the other idea. So like I said, I, I personally use maybe 10 or 12. And those are a mix of their uh, pro and con methods, right? Their true false variants. So error, you know, no error, <laughs> right? Nil, not nil. Equal, not equal maybe contains um, if I'm looking at like a big blob of HTML that gets dumped out and I want to assert that various elements are in there. Yeah, it starts get length, length, I'll use length. It contains one you can do by doing is or do like, uh, you know, assert true. Strings contains. Yeah. But yeah, I could do strings contains. I mean, I could do equals on it, but all these are like, I don't want to write the error message. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. That's why I use the contains here. But like, Things like the delta methods and all that stuff, I'm like, that's just too much for me. And it's mm. it's very overwhelming and intense. Ultimately, my tests are so small that those 10 or 12 kind of basic ones, true, mm. false, nil, error, equal, they cut it. They, they, they do like 90 to 95% of my heavy lifting for me. Mm. And they're, and they're not varieties and they're no, you know, no nil, not nil, whatever. Yeah. And I think we exactly, we've had what you, what we now discussed uh, has touched on a lot of very good points, which is, you know, where we're going is, you know, we've heard a lot of feedback. We've seen a lot of people ask us, you know, why do you have this? Why do you have that? And things, things, functions that we've even never seen before are there <laughs> people submitting pull requests on. So the future for us is, I mean, myself and my two other co-maintainers, George and Martin, we think it, it's about time to look at a version two of, we've had so many breaking change requests where we, we would break the API. You know, we've got a nice long list that, that we could put in a whole separate version. So that's why we started a drive for version two. And because it's community first, you know, we do this for the community, not, not for some ideals we have. Um, I, I know how, if I were to write Testify myself, I know what it would look like, but I'm not writing it for myself. <laughs> so that's why we've actually got, uh, and Matt, as you pointed out, maybe we can do something with a data set, but we mostly want to hear what the community's opinions are rather than look at what, be, because we can gauge what's used and what's not at best, even if we could but we can't gauge what's missing or what the community would like to have changed. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have a survey out, a simple Google form. Um, if, if I may plug it. Please <laughs> do, yeah. Where can we find it's that survey? It's on slash testify. And we would love to hear the community's feedback. And if it's time, and if it is according to the community to move forward onto a new breaking version to what they would like it to look like. We're doing it for the community. Can I ask you to put that link in the chat room for the show, as well as if you haven't already on the readme for testify right at the top. Yes. Make it available there. Cause that's the place I'm most likely to go and see it. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, no, of course. And that'll also end up on, you know, package.go.dev as well too, if you put it in the readme. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so Boyan, thank you so much for that. I think I'm very excited about what a version two could be because, of course, it means you can break in changes, we can take things out, we can simplify things. Just keep require, get rid of assert. <laughs> get rid of assert, it's useless. Uh, I've just called time.now and it is now time for the officially <laughs> sanctioned unpopular opinion.
So who's got an unpopular opinion for us today? I've given you two today. I'm done. Come on then. <laughs> Mark, you've given about 12. I have nothing but unpopular opinions. The segment is my life. <laughs> I, well, I'd yeah. be harder pressed to find a popular opinion. Yeah. <laughs> At the risk of going a bit velociraptor and meta. <laughs> and this is tangentially related to testing, but... I mean, frankly, the, the code that we've had the least issues with that's the most reliable, that has the most positive feedback, is the one that rarely changes and that we haven't touched in, in months, if not years. Well, years, I mean. So, frankly, we do this because change, you know, because uh, the industry is growing and moving and progressing, but... Sometimes it's just best to leave things alone. <laughs> Would it be easier if we slowed the industry down and stopped <laughs> progressing? Would that make maintaining the library easier for you? Or? Yeah, it actually would. Just Okay, Matt, can you get on that? Mm -hmm. I have my nights free. I can, I can watch movies again. <laughs> <laughs> this is not Ruby, Mark. You can't just choose what time it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even choosing what time it is. It's just overriding whole methods and like <laughs> types yeah. and fun stuff. Yes. Well, uh, yeah, I think that's a, a, a great one, actually, Boyan. You definitely, there's definitely something in that. I think a lot of what we do is uh, quite weird as uh, software people, but it's best not to think about it too much and just get on with it. I thank you so much. We have reached the end of today's show, but uh, thank you. And anybody at home that's interested in uh, talking about Testify. Go to the project, check the show notes, uh, have a look in the, uh, the GoTimeFM Slack channel. Uh, we'll be leaving the, a link to the survey there for you to do. Boyan, thank you so much. Especially thank you for getting up so early. But Or going to bed too late. Thank you for uh, all, all the work you do to support the community. It's a pleasure. Sorry, Mark. No, I was just making a joke about him going to bed late. <laughs> <laughs> I had to uh, make a special concession and go to bed early last night. Because <laughs> I'm in the future. I mean, it's Friday for me. <laughs> oh, so Ooh, it is what Ruby. Number? It is Ruby land in, yeah. in Australia right now. <laughs> yeah. I bet if we all did time.now, we'd get different answers. Oh, <laughs> Someone yeah. clearly didn't write a unit test for time zones. Oh, no. <laughs> That's, yeah, unpopular opinion on the one. Get rid of time zones. Why do we, we don't need them now. Get rid of them, I think. <laughs> time zones? What are, who are they for? <laughs> What's the deal with time zones? I don't mind waking up at 20 past G or whatever. 20 past G? If we want to change to have a brand new system. Did you say 20 past G? Yeah, yeah. I think we should use letters for the hours. I think we should move to a 100-hour based day <laughs> and go full-on metric with it, the deck-a-day. Matt, is, is your unpopular opinion today for everyone, all time measurements to move to Unix time? <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> I'd love to see someone with a Unix time watch. That's something I've not seen, and I would like to see that. When the Apple Watch first came out, my immediate thing, I jumped into Xcode, which I'm not an Xcode programmer. Mm. And I was like, oh, let me make an Apple Watch face that's just <laughs> the Unix time. I'm like, I'm sure some geek would buy that for $1.99 in the App Store. You can't do that. You can't make custom app uh, watch faces. Or at least oh, you couldn't then. You might be able to now. but yeah. I think you can make a complication. You can do the complications, the little things on it. Yeah, but that's not the same. That'd still be good. You could have Unix time on your watch. It's only useful for another 18 years, though. <laughs> exactly. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. See you next time. If you're listening to this in the month of July, you got a shot at some free goodies. We are doing a giveaway in celebration of our friend and open source whiz, Zeno Rocha's new book, 14 Habits of Highly Productive Developers. If you don't know Zeno by name, you may have heard of his wildly popular Dracula theme. It's an awesome dark mode theme for text editors, terminals, etc. And we have free bundles of Dracula Pro and 14 Habits to give away for absolutely free. That's a $60 value and there are three ways to enter. You can be the reviewer, the socializer, and the recommender. Hit up the link in your show notes to get started. There will be three lucky winners and you could be one of them. Thanks to our longtime sponsors, Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar for their continued support. To Breakmaster Cylinder for our amazing beats. And to you for listening to GoTime. We truly appreciate you. 
that's all for now. Generics next week. <laughs>